This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of September 21st through 25th, the second week of Jeopardy! Season 37. So let's get into it. On Monday, we had the contestants Dana Hill, a book dealer and stay-at-home mom from Simi Valley, California, Brian Ross, an attorney from Los Angeles, California, and Sarah Twilley, a music teacher from Seal Beach, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $19,801. And we got the Jeopardy! round categories The Sound of Music, The Templeton Prize, Middle Woman. For that category, um, you have to supply the woman's name that is the missing link in the middle of the clue. The Room Where It Happens, Tunnels, and Good Stuff in 2020. Which was nice that they included that. Yeah. That last category. That was helpful. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> I thought, oh, they were able to come up with five good things from, from the year 2020. Um, but they did. They did a nice job. Yeah. I mean, the first couple of months were... Fine. Uh, who... <laughs> I, I can't keep this up. I don't even remember the first Australia was on fire. We thought it was pretty bad. We had no oh, idea. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It was, oh, it, we thought it was bad. It, yeah. It was, it was bad. I mean, it, it was, was objectively bad. bad. It was just bad in a more localized way. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, the middle woman category was kind of like a reverse before and after. You have mm-hmm. to give the middle of... So, for instance, the $200 clue is plain blank dough, and you need to fill in the blank with Jane. Mm-hmm. It went on. It was, it was pretty good. I thought it was fairly gettable, but it's a it's a neat gimmick. Yeah, I thought it was fun. And uh, they did a good job with it. Um, Dana got four of them. Brian got that $600 clue. Uh, round blank hood uh, responding Robin. I I knew basically nothing about the Templeton Prize, but I feel like we got a, a little bit of a sense of it from that category, which yeah. I like when that happens. Yeah. I was able to get all the correct responses from the clues, but yeah, I, I also was learning plenty about a thing that I had heard the name of and knew nothing else about. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a prize for life's spiritual dimension, because that's a competition. Uh, no, I'm glad. I'm glad they do it. Um, uh, but it is it, it is sort of a, a funny thing to be uh, to be awarding the uh, the most spiritual among us. Um, yes, and and it is stipulated according to the two hundred dollar clue that the awards monetary prize must always exceed the Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. which that I don't know that feels a bit petty. Yeah. I wonder what the reason for that is. Is it is it to say like uh, the spiritual is more important, or is it just to be like our prize is bigger? Mm, Yeah, deal with it. Who knows? I wonder if they perceive themselves as in a rivalry with like the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, Mm, Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, trying to be more prestigious. Mm -hmm. So the uh, first daily double comes in the tunnels category. 
It is at the $1,000 level. Brian finds it, and he wagers $1,600. Uh, he's in a pretty good lead. He's at 6800 over Sarah's 800 and Dana's 5000 uh, And he gets the clue. The world's highest vehicular tunnel is on I-70, 60 miles west of this state capital. And he gets it right. That's Denver. Mm-hmm. I've gone through that tunnel plenty of times. Nice. Yes. I saw I-70 and I was like, I better know this. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Sarah is at 800. Brian is up to 8,400. And Dana is at 5,000. That Daily Double was the last pick of the Jeopardy round, so that's where we are. Uh, And the Double Jeopardy categories are American History, Rock Stars, New Technology, Four-Letter Words, the National Jewish Book Award for Fiction, and Lil Nasdaq X. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really funny and absurd. Yeah. Uh, X in quotation marks, so it's like an, an, a Nasdaq company with X in its uh, name. Mm-hmm. Kind of funny that both uh, the Jeopardy and the Double Jeopardy rounds had um, categories devoted to um, fairly niche prizes. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say that uh, 13-year-old Kyle is super pleased that System of a Down was a correct response on Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had... Three clues go unrevealed in this round. But I don't think I can blame the sound of music category because they went through that top to bottom right off the top in the in the mm. first round. So good on them for heading to the video category first, though that's good um that's good Jeopardy round strategy. Uh the second and uh in this game, final uh daily double. Um comes up in the American history category at the $1,600 level. Brian finds it and wagers 3,000 of his 14,000. Sarah has 2,000 at this point and Dana has 5,400. And he gets the clue. This president was said to regret his decision not to hang John C. Calhoun as a traitor. He guesses who is Lincoln. Uh, The correct response there is Andrew Jackson. So he drops down a bit but still in a pretty solid lead. Yeah. Timely. Yeah. Um, Timely clue, um, given certain recent uh, political accusations. Not really going to get deeply into it. but Mm, Yeah. Uh, So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Brian is in the lead at 15,400. Dana has made a really... um, excellent kind of recovery in the second half of double jeopardy and uh is at 12,600 and sarah is at 6,400 we get the final jeopardy category pioneering educators and the clue is before going into education she graduated from the university of rome in 1896 and was named assistant doctor at its psych clinic and Sarah has wagered everything, 6,400, um, and, and guesses who is Montessori. Uh, and that is correct, Maria Montessori. Um, I got this one. I didn't, I didn't know anything about her career before going into education, but just knowing an educator, um, kind of early 20th century 
and a connection to Italy. That sounded like it had to be Montessori to me. Yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't get there because I stuck on the psych clinic part, and I was mm. like, hmm, who's a famous female psychologist? Oh, yeah. Of that time. Oh, yeah, literally no one. Yeah. Because, like, they weren't allowed to be. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. Like, yeah, so. Yeah. I saw, they saw Montessori, and I was like, oh, that's duh. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dana had wagered also every single dollar she had. Um, that is not the best move strategically given the relative positions of the players. Um, but mm-hmm. she responds, who is Montessori, which brings her up to 25200 So it pays off for her. Um, Ryan has made a cover bet, 9801. Um, he guesses who is M. Curie. Marie Curie. And wishes happy birthday to Emmett. Uh, so uh, he drops down into third place, and Dana is our winner going into Tuesday. So on Tuesday, September 22nd, we have Rashima Wilkinson, a researcher from Venice, California, Tyler Brill, a freelance writer from Simi Valley, California, and Dana Hill, a book dealer and stay-at-home mom, also from Simi Valley, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $25,200. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, You Gotta Fight, followed by European History is a Downer, then the next category is Hodgepodge, then food science, the language of like, and westward ho. Mm-hmm. Good, good on them not putting a comma there in westward ho. Because that would be accusatory. <laughs> <laughs> I, it took me a minute. Um, <laughs> uh, and that westward ho category, um, that was a category where they will give you a state and you are supposed to respond with the uh, state that has the longest longest border on the western side of the state in the clue. Uh, the food science category was fun, I thought. And by fun, I mean I did well in it. <laughs> yes, I believe <laughs> that's, that. That's what I always that's what I always mean by a fun category. Um, yeah, it's fun when you're getting them right. Yeah, no, it is. And that's, it's- and it is unfair or dumb when you're getting them wrong. <laughs> I know how it goes. I, Literally yeah. impossible. No one has heard any of that information. I can't believe they're mm-hmm. putting it on TV. That's how that's, that's how right. we feel when we're getting them wrong. At the $400 level, we had one theory for why tomatoes were thought to be poisonous. Their acidity leached this toxic metal out of pewter plates. Uh, the response there was lead. Dana got it. That's a That's a fun fact. That tomatoes were widely believed to be poisonous. And it wasn't just people being crazy. People were getting poisoned, but not by the tomatoes. Yeah, probably just by their, like, poor um, food prep yeah. and other things. Mm-hmm. Like, just just yeah. not knowing what to do, you know, back in the day when we still used leeches and stuff. Yeah. And at the $1,000 level, we had um, mustard can act as one of these agents that allow oil and water to stay blended. Um, that's an emulsifier. Um, I finally remembered what that word meant. Nice. I got it right. It's yeah. like the first time I've heard, I've remembered what that word is. Yeah. And if you're like, if you're ever wondering like why they always put mustard into vinaigrettes, I mean, like it, it, it's good. It's a good flavor. Um, but it, you know, you see it in a lot of salad dressings and it's because it lets your oil and, and vinegar emulsify. Um, there's a couple different ingredients you can use that will do that. And mustard is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, little 
little bit of trivia in the... Well, there's a lot of trivia. I shouldn't use that term here because it's all trivia. In the European history as a downer category at the $1,000 level, uh, a secret Sicilian group fighting foreign invaders may be the origin of this notorious criminal group. Uh, that is the Mafia, and I, rem I learned that a long time ago. Um, supposedly, th this is... There are issues with this supposed uh, origin, but there is a story that uh, Mafia is an acronym that stands for Morte alla Francia Italia Anella, which means death to French Italy cries, um, coming from the 1282 rebellion in Palermo against French occupiers. Hmm. That always stuck with me. Because yeah. when, when I learned it as a kid, I was like, why do New Yorkers care about the French? Hmm. And then later on, you know, when I thought back about it when I was not a kid, I was like, oh, it's obviously not where that originated, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, we get the first Daily Double in the language of like category at the $800 level. Dana finds this one as the 17th pick and wagers 2000 for 3400 Tyler is at 1400 and Rashima is at zero. The clue is, to venerate, say, a specific Revolutionary War nighttime equestrian. And uh, Dana correctly responds, what is Revere? As in Paul Revere. Mm -hmm. Very cute. Very clever. Um, yes. At the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Dana is in a very solid lead with 9,000. Tyler is at 3,600. Rashima is at zero. And the double Jeopardy categories are Americans in Paris, country clubs, the man, the poetry, music festivals, daddy, papa, and three ends. This was a great board for me. This was fun. I like I like these categories. I had a I had a good time with with the clues, and my study of authors helped me a little bit uh, with the Gertrude Stein question. Americans in Paris at 1200. She ran a salon out of her home for some of the leading artists and writers of the day. Mm-hmm. That was Gertrude Stein. Yes. Uh, they had a picture to go with that. Um, they did. Yeah. How did the man, the poetry, go for you? Uh, it actually went okay. I got four out of five. I did not get the $2,000 clue. Uh, who did I guess? I don't know, Keats or someone like that. I had no idea, so I just guessed it. Yeah, Keats, Keats puts you in, like, the right time period, right? He and Shelley are contemporaries. Um, okay. Yeah. And we had uh, Bells in that category, um, mm -hmm. which uh, reminds me of your Edgar Allan Poe deep dive. Yes. No. Yeah. I think I also talked about the word tintinabulation at another point. Uh, yes. And yes, you did. music of Arvo Pert. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. Uh and then anything is like, I hear America singing. It's like, oh, okay, that's what women. Any any poetry that basically is like, go America. It's like, yeah, that's probably what women. Yep. Uh, and then the first, the $400 clue had no had no capitalization. So that was obviously E. Cummings. Right. Which is even more notable because Jeopardy clues are usually entirely capitalized. <laughs> it was very strange seeing a completely lowercase Jeopardy clue. Yeah. Uh, but we did get the second Daily Double in that category at the $1,600 level. 
Uh, it was pick number 11 in the round, and Dana found this one as well. She was in a very big lead at 14,600 over Tyler's 6,800 and Rashima's zero. Uh, she wagered 5,000. Good bet. I personally would have bet more in that position. Been like, eh, I'm doing well already. Let's just go for broke. Um, but it's a, you know, bet big there for sure. She gets the clue. Back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of 600. Uh, and I actually knew this one for sure. Uh, but uh, it took her a bit and she guessed Tennyson, which is correct. That is the charge of the light brigade. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then Daily Double number three comes up in the Americans in Paris category at the $1,600 level as the 23rd pick. Tyler finds this one um, and wagers 4000 of his 11200 Dana's at 23600 at this point. Rashima is at 3600 So Tyler's trying to get kind of back in contention. Um, and the clue is, in 1803, this American launched an experimental steamboat on a river in Paris. And he guesses who is Thomas Jefferson, um, but the correct response here is Robert Fulton. Yes. The only thing I remember about him is they called it Fulton's Folly. And I remember that, hmm. that it was a steamboat. I don't remember anything else, but Fulton and steamboats are stuck in my head together. Yeah, that's a, that's a good sort of Pavlov to have. Let me just quickly mention in the Daddy Papa category um, at the $1,600 level, um, a spirit known as a Loa, Papa Legba, is a gatekeeper and a master communicator in this religion practiced in Haiti. Um, Tyler rang in with voodoo, which was accepted as it should be as it should be, um, although uh, the Haitian form is Vodou, uh, V-O-D-O-U. Um, uh, yeah. Voodoo is um, what you call it, like the like the uh, American, like Louisiana, Louisiana version of that. Okay. And where does hoodoo fit in? Uh, I'm not really sure where hoodoo fits in. Let's, okay. Yeah, that's a good question. All right, so... At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Dana is in a big lead at 21,600, but it's not a runaway because Tyler is at 11,200, and Rashima could catch Tyler with 5,600. So they are, they are just within striking distance of each other. And they get the category, Diplomacy, and the clue... The book The Eagle and the Elephant is about the relationship between the U.S. and this Asian country beginning in 1833. So Rashima starts to... She gets down a TH, which is not enough to be accepted for uh, the correct response, so she loses 5000 Uh Tyler wagered everything but $5 and guessed what is India which is a very good guess, and perhaps not even a guess, perhaps based on some knowledge. Uh, but that was not accepted as correct, and so he went down to $5. And uh, Dana guessed what is Korea, and she lost 2000 The answer they were looking for was Thailand or Siam. Mm -hmm. However, there is a book that was published in, I believe, 2013, called The Eagle and the Elephant, Strategic Aspects of U.S.-India Economic Engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, it's 2011. 2011. So the only way that I could see justifiably ruling this incorrect is the 
beginning in 1833 stipulation. Um, Yeah. So in, in 1833, the U.S. would not have had diplomatic relations with India as a sovereign nation because it was colonized by the British at that point, right? I think. Right. Yeah. It was all right. Yeah. Although the clue does say this Asian country, not nation. Yes. And so, like, I mean, Scotland's a country. Yeah. It's not a sovereign You're nation right. right now. Like, I... And I... Yes, there may be that specific thing in the clue that says, no, that that means we're not talking about India. But the fact that there is literally a book titled The The Eagle and the Elephant talking about U.S.-India relations Mm -hmm. is like, yeah, that's that's either oversight or too nitpicky. Yeah. And you're not expected to, as a Jeopardy contestant, to have relatively detailed knowledge of like, international relations literature, right? Like, uh, ultimately, what I think what they intended to ask is what country the elephant would symbol- would symbolize, and there, there are at least two. Um, yeah. You know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this is not well pinned, as I have learned to say since becoming a trivia person. Um, yeah. It's not pinned. Uh, there's there is more than one um, pretty valid response. Um, yeah. So i i would I would think given given the things that other people have been brought back for, I would think Tyler would have a chance to come back because I, he, I would hope so. In i in my opinion, which doesn't really matter because I don't have any say in anything, but in my opinion, India should have been acceptable, which would mean that Tyler would win that game. Right. It, it's not like it's not like the issue last week where like Betsy where Betsy's response was like we all think it should have been accepted but it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the game at all right this one was a pretty big one yeah this this would have uh, this would have won him the game if they had accepted it yeah and ultimately this should not have left this this shouldn't have gone into the game in its final form mm-hmm. because you shouldn't have a final Jeopardy clue that isn't pinned. But it did, yeah. and he gave a valid response. I don't know if they'll bring him back, but I think he deserves it. Yeah, I certainly do too. Yeah. No, no, like no shade on Dana or anything. Oh yeah, Dana, no. Dana, Dana is the champion for for Tuesday, and she comes mm-hmm. back Wednesday. That's right. Uh, so on Wednesday we have Robert Kane, a copy editor from Hacienda Heights, California. Lisa Grove, a writer from Los Angeles, California, and Dana Hill, a book dealer and stay-at-home mom from Simi Valley, California, whose two-day cash winnings total $44,800. And we get the Jeopardy! categories around the USA, politics get physical, musical instrument etymology, Jonathan Swifties, TV inspirations, and name that part of speech. Love that musical instrument etymology category yeah it was a good category it was this category uh i did pretty well in it i'd hope so we get the the hot bois or the oboe in the 200 dollar clue uh the 400 dollar clue this name the name of this percussion instrument comes from the greek for wood and voice that is xylophone xylo meaning wood Mm -hmm. 600 dollar clue they gave a picture 
the name of this oval flute, which can have up to ten finger holes, is from the Italian. And, I mean, anybody who grew up with The Legend of Zelda knows that that's an ocarina. <laughs> the $1,000 clue, which was a triple stumper, was uh, this Renaissance-era stringed keyboard instrument sensibly gets its name from the Latin for key and string. Uh, that is clavichord, mm-hmm. which is a little bit tricky. Lisa rang in and guessed what is harpsichord. Yep. And we got the first daily double uh, at the $800 clue. It was pick number nine. Robert found it. Uh, he wagered everything. He was in the lead at 2200 Dana had 600 and Lisa had negative 600 He got the clue, whether hammered or strummed, this instrument get its, gets its name from the Latin for sweet song. Uh, and he guessed what is mandolin, but it's the dulcimer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a nice instrument. It is. My mom played the dulcimer a little bit when I was growing up. Yeah. It's hammered or strummed? Strummed. Ah. In the United States, in the United States, it is an Eastern. It has a lot of like a tradition in Appalachia, mm-hmm. Eastern United States. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Lisa has gotten out of the hole. She's at four hundred. Dana is at one thousand, and Robert has built himself back up to thirty-six hundred. And we get the categories for Double Jeopardy: journalists, on the globe, gases, you complete me, two U's together in quotation marks. It's a date, and celebs coming and going. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how they were going to find five words with two U's uh, for the you complete me category, but I thought it was good. We started off with the obvious vacuum, the mm-hmm. only one that I could think of uh, <laughs> uh, when the category was revealed. Uh, we went on uh, to um, garment with a Hawaiian name. That's a muumu. Uh Dana got that one. A series in which adjacent elements are not perceptibly distinguishable from one another is a continuum. The genus that includes asses, zebras, and related mammals is Epus. Mm-hmm. This was an excellent uh, to you in a row uh, clue. Uh, this longtime opposition leader in Myanmar has been the de facto leader of the country since 2016. That is Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, yeah. The two U's, uh, it's uh, the Sue word, it's uh, S-U-U in her name. Yeah, yeah. that was a good one. Yes. Uh, also, uh, I believe in that Equus is also the uh, genus that includes a naked Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Daily Double number two comes up in the On the Globe category at the $1,200 level. Robert finds this one as the 10th pick and wagers 3,000 of his 9,200. Dana's at 2,200 at this point, Lisa's at 1,600. Um, And he gets the clue. Argentina has a fertile region between two rivers, the Paraná and the Uruguay, that's known by this 11-letter name, the same as an ancient Middle Eastern civilization. And he correctly responds, what is Mesopotamia? And then at pick number 21, Robert hits the third daily double. He found all three in this game. He's very good at finding daily doubles. Mm -hmm. It is in the gases category at the $1,600 level. He is up at $14,600. Dana's at $6,200 and Lisa's at $5,600. He wagers another $3,000. And he gets the clue. Trapped in pockets underground where plant decomposition has occurred, natural gas is primarily this gas. 
Uh, he takes a bit and he guesses what is hydrogen, uh, but that is methane. Mm-hmm. So he loses the 3,000 he made on the previous Daily Double. Yeah. But he still goes into final with um, with a pretty good lead uh, at 14,004. Wait, is it supposed to be me? It is, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, he still goes into Final Jeopardy with a pretty good lead uh, at 14,400. Lisa's at 9,200, and Dana is at 8,200. And they get the Final Jeopardy category American authors and the clue. Reluctant to write what became her most famous novel, she said, Never liked girls or knew many except my sisters. It's like handing me a clue on a silver platter. Uh, I, I I felt like this one was pretty gettable. It was. I think it was approachable. Yeah, I think it was. It was a, a pretty straightforward one, and indeed they all got it. Dana wagered everything she had, eighty two hundred, and responded, "Who is Alcott?" Lisa wagered nine thousand one hundred. Both of these big wagers are probably not a strategically great decision, but you know they they got the answer right, so. So Lisa responds, who is Louisa May Alcott, uh, the only one to get the full name. Uh, Robert makes a cover bet, 4,001, who is, and responds, who is Alcott. Um, and so our final score is Robert is the winner with 18,401. Lisa's in second place with 18,300. Dana's in third place with 16,400. Those big final Jeopardy wagers um, give us a really impressive set of final scores. It's true. Seldom see a third place finisher with 16,400. Yes. Which hurts when it goes down to 1,000. Yeah. Really, they're just points. They're not real. They're just points until you win. Yep. So that means on Thursday, we have the contestants Samir Gandhi, a writer from Pasadena, California. Sarah Tayar, a clinical social worker from Pasadena, California, and Robert Kane, a copy editor from Hacienda Heights, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $18,401. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. Raise the flag. See who salutes. Books and authors. Three-word phrases. I played her in the movie. And A is for Autumn. A in quotation marks. And boy, did I have a hard time remembering that A was in quotation marks with this category. I know. Me too. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just like, I kept guessing the wrong thing. Well, except, well, not on all of them, but on a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but hey, I knew a sports thing that the contestants didn't know. Uh, Ooh, at yeah. the $400 level, each fall, Alabama and this SEC football arch rival meet in the Iron Bowl. Um, Alabama's rival is Auburn. Yeah. Um, Samir guessed what is Arkansas, which is a fine guess if you're trying to come up with a viable, you know, school that starts with A. Um, Yeah. I've learned a couple things about the sports. Not a lot, but a couple. We get the first daily double in the three word phrases category at the thousand dollar level. It's the 17th pick and Robert finds it. And he makes it a true daily double with 3,400. Uh, Sarah's at 2,600 at this point, and Samir is at 1,000, and he gets the clue. If you do this, you're either literally handing a dollar bill to someone or shifting responsibility. Um, and he correctly responds, what is pass the buck? Mm-hmm. Just pretty well-played Jeopardy round overall. They had a, They had a few triple stumpers, but... 
So in the double Jeopardy round, we get the categories sculpture, bodies of water, fangs a lot, occupational song titles, farewell addresses, and way to beat, then go. And in that category, go will be the second syllable of each correct response. Yes, which uh, was weird and for me, like, bizarrely difficult to to work my head around. I enjoyed really mispronouncing the words to really get that G-O syllable as a go. Um, yeah. Uh, Botticelli painted a trying time for Jesus in his work titled This in the Garden. That was the $1,200 clue. The correct response is agony. Um, yes, ag- agony. <laughs> I think. Yes, agony. <laughs> Um, uh, nobody got that one. It was a triple stumper. Um, it's cause you don't think of that word as having a go in it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, it's very hard. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, pagoda was an easier one to get to. I thought, yeah, I thought that one should have been higher up in the, in the category, but the $2,000 clue I enjoyed cause I very rarely get to hear that word anymore. Uh, excessive nationalism can also be called this. Uh, other type of ism, which is jingoism. Mm-hmm. Like that word crops up every few years in like political discussion. Yeah, I feel like it's been a while, though. It could be popularized again. Yeah, when would we possibly use it, Kyle? I don't even know when that comes up. Um, just kidding. I do. All right, uh, we get daily double number two in the farewell addresses category. It is at the uh, 20th pick, $2,000 level. Robert finds this. Like I said, he is good at finding those daily doubles. Mm-hmm. He is in the lead at 14800 Sarah's at 11200 and Samir's at 6400 He wagers 3200 and he gets the clue. She breathed her last in 1901 at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, surrounded by many children and grandchildren. Uh, Robert guessed who is Florence Nightingale, but that is Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. Queen Victoria, who lived into the 20th century, which is an important trivia fact to know about her. Yes. Could we go back just for a second to the Fangs a Lot category at the $400 level and note that nobody did an accent? Oh, this must be a first! Yeah. Alex uh, did not do a Dracula accent. Uh-huh. Um, and neither did Robert. I'm sure if Robert had, then, well, then Alex would have followed suit. But usually Alex will do it anyway, even if nobody yeah, initiates. Yeah, he does not need an invitation. <laughs> he doesn't, no. Yeah. Uh, the clue there was you can get custom designer fangs of this classic lit character for 1999 at Party City, just like the author intended. <laughs> uh, a correct response there. Who is Dracula? Uh, and um, yeah, Alex normally never passes up a chance to do his Dracula impression. Man, I don't know. Does not bode well. Yeah, 2020 has taken so much from us. All right, Daily Double number three is in Bodies of Water at the $800 level. Robert finds that one as well um, and wagers 5,000 of his 14,800. 
Exact same total that he was at for Daily Double number two, bigger wager. Sarah's at 11200 for this one. Uh, Samir is at 8000 And Robert gets the clue. This river flows into Lake Constance, which borders Switzerland, Germany, and Austria. He guesses what is the Rhone. Uh, he was one letter off. The correct response here is the Rhine. So he drops down quite a bit. Yes. And always, every time one of these, like the Rhone or the Rhine or the Danube comes up in like a Jeopardy question, I'm always like, oh yeah, I need to go back over European rivers. And then I always forget until the next time it comes up and I'm like, yeah. oh, I still am not sure of any of those. Yep. Yes, I, yeah. I have that same response. Yeah, that's fairly late in the round and, and Robert drops down. So going into final Jeopardy, Robert is in third place. At 10,200. Samir's in second place at 11,200, and Sarah's in first place at 12,000. So they are very close going into, going into final. They get the category Astronomy, and the clue discovered in 1967. The first of these stars was dubbed LGM1. The perceived signal was jokingly thought to be from Little Green Men. Uh, Robert wagered 1801 to get a dollar ahead of Sarah, and he guessed what is a supernova. That is incorrect. Samir, I guess, feels really confident about astronomy because he wagered 11,000, uh, and he did get it correct with what is a pulsar. Mm-hmm. So he jumps up, and then Sarah made a cover bet, 10,401, and got it incorrect with what is a red dwarf. So she ends up in third place, uh, and Samir is the champion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, the the kind of key here is uh, so pulsars emit this um, like pulsing signal, and I don't think there's anything else quite like that. I remember having to differentiate pulsars versus quasars, but I don't think that the that the quasars like pulse, hence the hence the name of the pulsar. Um, right. So if you knew that, then you know, then you've got it. Yeah, because um, a pulsar is actually a star; mm-hmm. it's a neutron star, whereas yeah. a quasar is actually a galaxy. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so on Friday, September 25, we have the contestants Alyssa Weinberger, a media rights assistant from Los Angeles, California. Julissa Castillo, an operations manager from Los Angeles, California, and Samir Gandhi, a writer from Pasadena, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $22,200. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, traveling on the interstate, guys named Doug, WJPY Classical Radio, Sounds Like a Boat Part, Heard on a TV Drama, and Quaff Suppressant. <laughs> That was a nice pun. It was good. Yeah. I like that. That was all about hairstyling mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. We had a fun uh, Stranger Things reference at the $200 level of Heard on a TV Drama. It's always going to make me think of Anarchy now. Uh, the quote there was, she's a weapon. Do you seriously want to fight the Demogorgon with your wrist rocket? Yeah. Stranger Things is a fun show. Yes, it is. Yeah. Still haven't watched the third season, though. I need to do that. Yeah, you do. You I need have, to watch the third season. We just have not had the mental fortitude 
or emotional fortitude to like start a new series at all. Yeah. About anything. That's fair. That's fair. Um, for a while I could only do light fluffy stuff. There's a new, uh, new, new season of, uh, Great British Bake Off. Oh yeah. Going on Netflix, but apparently they're doing like once one episode at a time. What? Okay. Yeah. Because we saw new episodes and we're like, awesome. And it's like week one. And that's it for right now. Oh, yeah. I do enjoy some Great British Bake Off. Yeah. And this $400 quote was just in the book that I'm reading about the apocalyptic in American popular culture. Uh, What You Call Love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. That's from Mad Men. I Mm -hmm. like read that in my philosophy and theology book the other day. I was like, wow. Yeah. Uh, nice. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I think about the book yet because I'm halfway through. It's a little, it's a little cerebral, but mm. I did recognize the Mad Men quote from it, so it's earned its keep. Nice. Yeah. So we get the daily double in the traveling on the interstate category <clears throat> at the eight hundred dollar level. Uh, Julissa finds that one, and she wagered two thousand. She was in the lead at forty four hundred. Samira was at four hundred, and Alyssa was at thirty two hundred. She gets the clue, I-10 is nearly a mile high east of Tucson, but below sea level in this city founded by De Bienville in 1718. And uh, she got it right. That was New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Julissa had a, a way of answering that, like, she, she would answer things that clearly she knew the correct response, but she'd ring in and then she would take a moment. Yeah. Or on this Daily Double, she took a moment. Yep. Rather than simply, you know, j- than just giving the answer right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, on the Daily Double, I read it as her kind of hoping it was New Orleans, you know? Yeah. Like, that nothing about it made her absolutely certain, but that it sort of added up to likely New Orleans. I don't know. I'm reading mm-hmm. a lot into a facial expression. But that's that's often how I feel about some of the higher level Jeopardy clues is like there's there's nothing in here that I just absolutely, you know, know that fact cold, you know, but there's a lot that kind of points me toward a particular mm-hmm. response. Yeah. And then after that, they did not finish the round. They left two on the board in the classical radio mm, category. Yeah. Which bummed me out, but uh, at least I got the high-level clues. Mm-hmm. Got a triple stumper on the Bartered Bride by Smetna. I didn't know that one. I bet you did. I did know that one. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reason Smetna sticks in my head now is because I couldn't pull Smetna in the Tournament of Champions. Mm, right. In the semifinals. Yes. For the Moldau. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Samir is in third place at 1,200. Alyssa is in second place at 3,200. And Julissa has the lead at... 8,000. And they get the Double Jeopardy categories Plays, All Things Belgian, Flick of Seagulls, 1920, Ice Cream, and Double E for the Two E's coming up together. Mm-hmm. Flick of Seagulls with seagulls in movies. I just put that together. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, had a that was interesting that they managed to get five clues. It, yes. Sometimes you wonder how you're going to do I mean, I just assumed it was going to be a seagulls category, but flick in this case meant movie. We had a, um, a judge's ruling uh, in the $400 in double E. The clue is to suddenly swerve in a, in a different direction. 
Uh, Samir rang in and said, what is Kareen? Uh, it was ruled incorrect. Uh, Alyssa picked it up with Veer. Uh, but then later on in the round, the judges gave him back the money mm-hmm. and awarded him a correct response. They decided Kareen was acceptable. I feel like you can careen in the same direction. Like, I don't feel like careening necessarily requires a swerve, but I, I can see where they're coming from. Uh, sure. You know, that they would have not considered that response and that, you know, it seems close enough. Speaking of which, in the plays category at the $2,000 level, the clue was the musical Hello, Dolly was based on this 1954 Thornton Wilder play that also featured Dolly Levi. Um, I'm going to go with that. And I very confidently said, what is the Merchant of Yonkers? And then it was a triple stumper. Um, Alex said the correct response is the matchmaker. And I said, what? And looked it up on Wikipedia. And it turns out that the Merchant of Yonkers is the 1938, 1939? Where? When? Mm. Uh, 1938 play by Thornton Wilder, which features Dolly Levi, which he rewrote as the matchmaker in 1954. And so the Merchant of Yonkers is wrong. But. But <laughs> I feel like it's not a great clue for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh,. I picked up Merchant of Yonkers um, because I saw Hello, Dolly on Broadway a few years back with Bernadette Peters in the title role. She was magnificent. But anyway, I was like reading through the um, reading through the notes before the show and, and that stuck in my head. And somehow I forgot the matchmaker. But yeah, I don't know. I think I would be a little salty if I had been if it had been me and I had rung in with the Merchant of Yonkers. Like it's wrong mm-hmm. because the year is wrong, but... But it's, like, not wrong. Yes. It, yeah. It, yeah. Right, like, that's, not, that's not one right. that I, like, I stone-cold knew the fact. I'm like, yes, the play yeah. preceding Hello, Dolly was the merchant of Yonkers. That's what it was. Like, nope. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Matchmaker also was more popular and made into a film. I, I just had, like, the the initial iteration stuck in my head. You know, there's, the Matchmaker is it's the better known i just happened to recall the title of the of the less popular one but still um speaking of which the second daily double comes up in that same category and plays in the twelve hundred dollar level it's the 11th pick julissa finds it and wagers two thousand of her nine thousand six hundred samir has been corrected to forty eight hundred exactly half her total at that point and Alyssa has sixteen hundred And she gets the clue. Bradley Cooper used no makeup or prosthetics in the role of John Merrick in a Broadway revival of this play. And she correctly responds, what is the elephant man? Yeah. Another instance where it took, like, she took a second Mm -hmm. and got it right. And I feel like she just knew it. But, you know, she, she, uh, with every response, she seemed to just take a second, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, The third Daily Double... Comes up in the all things Belgian category. It's at the $2,000 level. And uh, Samir finds this one. He was at 9200 which is second place to Julissa's $12,000. Uh, Alyssa was back at 3600 And he wagered 2000 You got the clue. St. Nicholas, Belgium has a museum of this Flemish cartographer who around 1569 devised a way to depict a 3D globe on a 2D map. 
and he guessed the only cartographer that anyone needs to know, Mercator. Mm. Maybe he mm. knew that for sure. Maybe he didn't guess. But he got it correct with Mercator. Yeah. If you've never gone down a what is the problem with the Mercator proje- projection rabbit hole, go down that rabbit hole. It's mm-hmm. it's an interesting one. It um, is. Yeah. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Samir is in the lead with 15,200. Uh, Julissa has 13,200. And Alyssa has 4,800. And we get the final Jeopardy category, highest paid athletes. And the clue is, on Forbes' 2020 list of the 100 highest paid athletes, at age 50, this active individual sportsman is the oldest. Alyssa has wagered 4,700. And uh, she has written down who is Yager. Uh, Kyle tells me that is an athlete. Um, yeah, he's a hockey player. He's cool. one of the best. Okay. <laughs> Let me just embarrass myself on the pod here. <laughs> great. <Sorry>. Great. <laughs> I know the sports. Uh, I, I, uh, I admire people who know the sports. I'm not one of them. I'm working on it. Uh, Julissa has written down uh, who is Phil, and she's got part of an M there, and her wager is $13,199, which is strategically the wrong move here, probably. And then Samir has written down who is Mr. Magoo. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's charming, and he's wagered zero, right? So he could write whatever he wanted. The correct response here, Julissa was going for it. It is Phil Mickelson, also Mm -hmm. an athlete. That's what I've got. He's, yes, he's a he's golfer. He's a golfer. No, I know. I looked he's, it up. Okay. <laughs> he's, I mean, essentially, it, I mean, it's, it can be arguable, but basically if it weren't for Tiger Woods, he would have been the best of that era, like of the yeah. era immediately preceding mm-hmm. right now when we were having the younger crop come up and start to be the, the best. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, tough break for Julissa because she, it seems like new... I don't know if she ran out of time or if she couldn't pull his last name. Yeah. I don't know. If she got Phil and part of an M, I'm going to think she was cut off in the middle of writing. Yeah. So it probably just took her a while to get to the name and then not enough time to write. Yeah. So Samir's $0 bet um, let, well, I guess in any case, since nobody got it, he would have, uh, he would have stayed at the top regardless. Um, So he will be our champion on Monday. Yep, he will. Yeah. He's fun. I like Samir. Yeah, me too. This is the time in our show when basically we don't plug our Patreon anymore. I don't know when we're going to start plugging the Patreon again. It's there if you want to go check it out. But we care a lot more about you doing something good for your community and our world. We have mentioned before that you can look to connect financially or with your time. We, in the past, have directed you to um, blacklivesmatter.com or communityjusticeexchange.org as places to um, start looking to connect. This week, though, we want to make sure that if you are eligible to vote, you are registered to vote, and you are going to vote. You're all going to vote, right? Just please oh, vote. Oh, I just heard them all shout yes. Okay. Oh, that all was right. really nice. Good. Good. Uh, I know that... The people who listen to our podcast certainly will vote if they're eligible to vote. Um, yes. Because that's the kind of people they are. Make sure to make your voting plans. Look up where you're going and when you need to go there and whether you need to bring anything with you. And remind your friends. Because uh, it's important. 
So thanks. Yeah. If you think you're registered to vote, go ahead and just check. Yeah. Just check go it. Go to vote, vote.org. Makes it real easy. Just make sure. Double check. Yep. Couldn't hurt to check. All right. Are you ready for a deep dive? Okay. Are you talking about the Anschluss? I'm not talking about the Anschluss. Are you talking about Glow? No, I'm not talking about Glow. Have you watched Glow? I haven't watched Glow. It's on my list. Hmm. Have That's you watched Glow? Uh, my wife watched it, and I watched some of it with her. It's pretty. Okay. It's good. I enjoyed it. For a long time, I could not keep straight Glow and Pose because they were the two shows that people I knew were watching that had four letters in the title that I had not watched. Mm. Then I watched some of Pose. Now I can keep them straight. Okay, my last one, because you're, you're psyching me out by saying you, you're sure I'm not going to get it. Are you talking about Bonnaroo? I am not talking about Bonnaroo. Okay, I felt <laughs> but, like that was really off but... um, <laughs> uh, No, um, okay, so it's from Friday's game, actually. It's the ice cream category. Oh. The, the clue was, ice cream cones first became popular after appearing at the World's Fair in this city in 1904. Uh, the correct response there is St. Louis. And I think I mentioned on the podcast a week or two ago um, that I was reading Devil in the White City about the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, uh, which I've since finished. It was a good read. But every time World's Fairs come up, I'm like, I'm confused about World's Fairs. I can't keep them straight. I don't really understand what they are. You know, just sort of perplexed by World's Fairs in general. And so rather than a specific World's Fair, I thought I would do kind of a more of an overview, kind of get myself oriented and hopefully some of our listeners to World's Fairs. And as I started getting myself oriented, I figured out how I was going to narrow this deep dive down because it turns out it does need to be narrowed down quite a bit. So World's Fairs, here we go. So a World's Fair is a large international exhibit of industrial, scientific, and cultural items on display at a specific site for a limited period of time. And there were precursors to what are now regarded as kind of the first World's Fairs um, that meet those parameters to some extent. But we consider the first World's Fair, like the first official World's Fair, um, to be the one that happened in London in 1851. I'm going to mostly use the term World's Fair. Americans tend to refer to these things as World's Fairs. Um, but exposition is more commonly used in continental Europe and exhibition in the UK. Uh, in 1928, the Bureau International des Expositions was founded um, to bring order to the scheduling of these events um, and set forth the rights and responsibilities of the hosts and participants thereof. And I'm not going to say it French. Uh, in the future, I'm just going to call it the BIE. Uh, the BIE has retroactively recognized certain fairs as official, sanctioned uh, world expositions. Um, if you count all of the world's fairs that there have been, there have been over 100, and I cannot possibly cover them all. But I decided to narrow this down uh, to those world's fairs that were recognized by the BIE, and more specifically, the ones that were recognized as World Expos. Um, there have been over 100 World's Fairs, including the ones that are not officially recognized. 69 have been officially recognized by the BIE. And then uh, 
there are two classifications within that. Um, world expos from the founding of the BIE forward could be scheduled up to every five years, um, and they could last up to six months. But there were also specialized expos. They take place in between world expos. They can last up to three months, and they often have a narrower focus. Uh, so there have been 35 world expos, like the, the big ones, including the retroactively recognized ones from 1851 to 2015. Um, and there have been 34 specialized ones. So we're gonna, we're gonna do an overview of the world expos. There are a couple of significant world's fairs that are not on this list because the BIE did not recognize them, but I'm gonna just cover the 35. I'll go into some detail on the ones that are kind of more historically significant and the others, I'll just mention that they happened. Um, and just sort of as a, as a shorthand for kind of the scale that we're talking about for these, I'm going to mention how many countries participated and how many visitors attended for each. Okay. Uh, except for there's, there's one or two where they don't have attendance information. So the 1851 great exhibition in London is the first world's fair. 25 countries were in attendance, uh, and 6 million visitors attended this exhibition. Um, it took place in London's Hyde Park and was organized by civil servant Henry Cole under the direction of Prince Albert. Um, it was housed in a building called the Crystal Palace, which was a very impressive, huge plate glass and iron structure, which was built for the purpose. Um, the 6 million visitors who attended, that was equivalent to about a third of the total population of Britain at the time. So hugely popular. Um, its busiest day saw 109,000 attendees. And there were numerous significant exhibits and demonstrations. Um, Morse's telegraph apparatus was demonstrated with the royal family in attendance at the time, and it was subsequently adopted as the standard for telegraphic communication. The first modern pay toilets were installed at this exhibition, mm. charging a one penny fee for use. Uh, to spend a penny became a euphemism for to use the bathroom. Huh. Mm -hmm. Vulcanized rubber was uh, was displayed and, and seemed to um, gain in popular or like recognition or popularity here. India exhibited the Kohinoor diamond, uh, which was at the time the world's largest known diamond. So those were a few of the of the sort of most popular or significant um, attractions at this fair. Um, the Crystal Palace, uh, after the exhibition was over, was um, removed and then was reassembled in South London afterwards. But it was destroyed in a fire in 1936. And this was very successful. And its success set the stage for basically an onslaught of World Fairs uh, through the following decades. There the late 19th and early 20th century saw a huge number of world's fairs. In 1855, we have the Universal Exposition in Paris. Uh, 25 attending countries, 5 million visitors. Um, they aimed to surpass the 1851 Great Exhibition, but um, didn't. There was a pavilion for industry and then a separate pavilion for arts. Um, and then there was also a competing, non-approved uh, pavilion of realism uh, helmed by Gustave Courbet, who was mad that his work had not been accepted for exhibition at the official arts pavilion. This one lost a lot of money. 
And uh, looking for kind of legacies or important things that came out of this one, the major one I found is that uh, Napoleon III requested a wine classification system for the Bordeaux wine that would be on display. Um, wine critics obliged and came up with such a system, which seems to still be um, in use to some degree today, but less of a big deal, the 1855. In 1862, there is another international exposition in, in London, uh, 39 countries in attendance and 6 million visitors. It took place in South Kensington. Exhibits at this one included Charles Babbage's analytical engine, ice manufactured by an early refrigerator, the Bessemer process for making steel uh, was exhibited as well. Um, there was a chess tournament associated with this one, and um, musical compositions were commissioned for and premiered at this event. In 1867, we have another one in Paris, uh, another Exposition Universelle. This time there are 42 countries in attendance and 15 million visitors. Um, although I have also encountered smaller numbers, um, uh, some of the attendance numbers are um, a little bit in conflict, and I think that has to do with um, the fact that often the same person would attend on multiple days in order to take in all the sites. Um, and so how you count attendance is uh, a little tricky. Uh, this one was held at the Champ de Mar, the green space that runs up to where the Eiffel Tower is now, although it wasn't there at the time. We'll get to that. Um, and notable in inventions at this one included a hydraulic elevator um, and reinforced concrete. Japanese art was displayed at this World's Fair and uh, influenced post-impressionists, including Van Gogh. Visitors included Jules Verne. Um, there is some thought that uh, the work 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was inspired in part by the demonstration of electricity that he saw here. Tsar mm. Alexander II visited as well, and uh, so did Otto von Bismarck. In 1873, we have the Austrian International e Exhibition in Vienna. It has a German name that I'm not sure I can pronounce correctly. Weltaufstellung. 35 countries attended this one and 7 million visitors. The motto of this fair was culture and education, and it commemorated Franz Joseph I's 25th year as emperor. Uh, there were 26,000 exhibits in various buildings built for the occasion. Um, the central building, the Rotund, was the largest cupola construction in the world until it was surpassed in 1957. The Japanese pavilion was especially notable. Um, cultural and artistic displays, a Japanese garden. Um, Japan intended to use this fair and, uh, and subsequent fairs to kind of raise its profile in the global community and increase its export business. Um, and were, I think, pretty successful in that. In 1876, we have the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. Uh, so the first, the first recognized World's Fair in the United States. Um, 37 countries in attendance and 10 million visitors. Um, and this one commemorated the centennial of the Declaration of Independence, of course. Um, 200 buildings were built for the purpose with five main halls. Uh, the Centennial Monorail was built to connect two of those buildings and to showcase a steam locomotive monorail system. Displays included Alexander Graham Bell's telephone, Edison's automatic telegraph system, uh, the typewriter, and Heinz ketchup. The plant kudzu was introduced in this exposition as an erosion control plant. Um, and that is, it's funny because it's wildly invasive 
<laughs> uh, being married to a southerner, I first encountered kudzu in the idiom, it grows like kudzu. Um, uh, but yes, kudzu was introduced to the United States at this fair. And Sweden presented a Swedish cottage to show their traditional style of schoolhouse, which was subsequently relocated to Central Park, where it is now the Swedish Cottage Marionette Theater. Um, everything at this fair was powered by an enormous steam engine called the Corliss Steam Engine, which stood 45 feet tall and weighed 650 tons. Uh, that's the 1876 Centennial Exposition. In 1878, we have another Universal Exposition in Paris. 36 countries, 16 million visitors, um, and it celebrated France's recovery after the Franco-Prussian War. The buildings were somewhat unfinished on the opening day in May, um, but they were completed by June, um, and electric street lighting was installed for this fair. An ice machine was displayed uh, and was greatly remarked on, as were Edison's megaphone and phonograph. But the most significant thing about this one, and this is where it gets a little yikesy, is that this is the first World's Fair to have a human zoo. Um, uh. Yep. 400 indigenous people, many Africans, but other indigenous people also were brought in and displayed as demonstrations of various cultures. So, blah. And uh, the tradition of having human zoos at World's Fairs would continue for quite some time. Uh, in 1880 to 81, um, October 1880 to April 1881, because it's the Southern Hemisphere and that's the summer, Melbourne International Exhibition takes place. Um, it is the first World's Fair in the Southern Hemisphere with 33 countries participating, only 1.3 million visitors. Um, Melbourne and Sydney competed with each other, trying to each uh, get the jump on planning a World's Fair. Sydney ended up having a World's Fair that was a little earlier than the Melbourne one, um, but Sydney's focused almost entirely on agriculture, and so in that kind of retroactive classification scheme, um, Sydney's was not recognized as a World's Fair um, because it didn't have kind of the, the grand scope of a World's Fair, um, but Melbourne's did, although the attendance was not great because, you know, Australia in the 19th century. In 1888, there is a universal exposition in Barcelona, um, 30 countries attending and 2.3 million visitors. Um, so Barcelona's Arc de Triomphe is built for this occasion along with uh, Ciutadella Park, um, but I didn't find a whole lot about this one. Um, in 1889, there is another Universal Exposition in Paris, but this is the big one. 1889, Paris World's Fair. This is, this is a big deal. 32 million visitors, 35 participating countries. Um, this is the one the Eiffel Tower was built for. Um, it was planned to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, uh, which marked the start of the French Revolution, of course. Because of that uh, theme, nearly all European countries with monarchies officially boycotted the fair. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, citizens from those countries did participate um, and exhibit with funding from private sponsors. Otis safety elevators were introduced here, providing the elevators that carried people up the legs of the Eiffel Tower. Um, there was a public demonstration of their uh, safety brakes, uh, where an elevator was loaded with um, thousands of pounds of lead, and then they cut the cable with an axe to show the safety brakes um, mm. uh, catching the elevator. There were reproductions of villages and uh uh, human habitations from around the world. Um, Cairo Street was especially popular. 
Um, there was a Javanese village, a Lapland village, um, with costumed residents there. Um, and another, um, they called it a Negro village. That was what they called the first one with the human zoo, um, displaying about 400 human beings. Uh, there was also a history of habitation exhibit, um, with versions of houses from history arranged by century and continent. Although from what I've seen, there were, there were some flights of fancy involved. They were, they were maybe not the most historically and archeologically accurate. In 1893, we have another one in the United States. This is the one I read the book about the world's Columbian exposition in Chicago. Um, commemorating the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the Americas. This one had 46 countries and 27 million visitors. I just finished reading Devil in the White City, and so now I know too much about this one. Um, but uh, the architectural ar- architecture was notable, with John Root and Daniel Burnham taking the lead on that, and then having um, 14 great buildings designed by different prominent architects, many from New York, uh, united by a Beaux-Arts aesthetic, and all um, with facades in a white material called staff, which was kind of a cheap material that was supposed to look like stone um, uh, to give kind of a unifying impression um, that gave it its white city nickname. The Ferris wheel was the big spectacle of this fair. Um, This was the world's first Ferris wheel. Frederick Law Olmsted of, uh, of Central Park did the landscape design. Exhibits included replicas of Columbus's three ships. Uh, Mybridge displayed moving pictures using his zoopraxiscope, uh, which made it the world's first com- commercial movie theater. There was another Cairo Street, like at the 1889 Paris Exposition. Juicy fruit gum was introduced here, so was cream of wheat. Not my favorite foods, but <laughs> mm. <laughs> influential. <laughs> uh, and um, the fair is where Pabst got its blue ribbon. Um, uh. Yeah. Uh, the Pledge of Allegiance was first recited at an event at the fair. Um, and uh, the first fully electric kitchen, including an automatic dishwasher, was displayed. Um, the Parliament of World Religions was also planned. The first Parliament of World Religions was planned as mm-hmm. part of this fair. Buffalo Bill Cody wanted to have a pavilion or like a like a like a concession at the fair, but he was denied. And so he opened up his own show privately adjacent to the fairgrounds, and he was <laughs> phenomenally successful. Yeah. Devil in the White City is worth reading. There's this whole serial killer thing that happened kind of alongside, but that's mm-hmm. another story for another day. In 1897, there was an international exposition in Brussels, uh, 27 countries and 7.8 million visitors. There was a big Congo exhibit because, you know, Belgium, um, blah, uh, but not much to highlight here that I could find. 1900 Paris exposition has 58 countries and 50 million visitors. Um, this one also had a Ferris wheel, but, you know, it's not the world's first Ferris wheel, so a little bit less of a big deal. Um, yeah. Uh, diesel engines, talking films, and escalators were all inventions that were introduced to the public here. Um, the train station, which now houses the Musée d'Orsay, was built for this exposition. Um, and Art Nouveau style gained international attention via this fair. At the Palace of Optics, the Great Telescope um, enlarged the moon 10,000 times for attendees. Um, the Lumiere brothers presented films on a large screen in the Gallery of Machines. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, there was an aquarium with exotic marine life. 
Uh, the Globe Celeste Planetarium um, presented um, a presentation of the night sky. And the 1900 Summer Olympics were planned to coincide with this uh, exposition in Paris. In 1904, we have the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis, uh, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase. Um, 62 countries participated and 19 million visitors attended. The x-ray machine and infant incubator were among the inventions displayed. Um, Private automobiles debuted here with 140 models uh, displayed in the Palace of Transportation. Um, As the Jeopardy clue mentioned, uh, ice cream cones were popularized at this fair, as was Dr. Pepper. Um, There are also claims that hamburgers and hot dogs gained in popularity here, but that's a little trickier, I think, a a little more historically questionable. The Philippines had recently become a territory of the U.S. subsequent to the Spanish-American War. 1,102 Filipino people were displayed at the fair, as were Apache mm. people, yep, um, and members of the Alaskan uh, Tlingit tribe. There was also a Congolese pygmy named Oda Benga, um, who was brought to and displayed at this exposition um, and was subsequently housed at the Bronx Zoo as an exhibition. Uh, yeah. Um, and he was the, the subject of a controversy, um, with, um, certain, like, New York clergy people and activists, um, advocating for his freedom. Um, the book Spectacle recounts his story and is, uh, is a good read. And, uh, the 1904 Summer Olympics in St. Louis were scheduled to coincide with this fair. Wow. Yeah. Lots going on here. Um, but the human zoos, man. Ugh. In 1905, there is another one in Belgium. This one is in Liège. It marked 75 years of Belgian independence, 7 million visitors, 29 countries. Um, I didn't find much about this one, except that they had a display of medieval and Renaissance art. Um, In 1906, Milan has one. 25 countries and 10 million visitors. Um, Electric tramways were built for the occasion, but I didn't find much besides that about this one either. Um, And then 1910... We're back in Belgium, in Brussels. Belgium just had one, but here they are having another one. 13 million visitors, 26 countries. A fine art pavilion included the works of Monet, Renoir, Rodin, Matisse. But I didn't find too much besides that about this one either. And then Belgium again in 1913. Uh, This time in Ghent, 24 countries, 9.5 million visitors. I encountered something saying this was the last one with a human zoo, but... Then I found more accounts of human zoos, so I'm not sure if something changed about how they were doing the human zoos. Yeah. They seem icky anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In 1915, we have the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco celebrating the inauguration of the Panama Canal. 32 countries participate and 19 million visitors attend. Um... This one also showcased San Francisco's recovery from the 1906 earthquake. Uh, The centerpiece building was the Tower of Jewels, which was 435 feet tall and covered in cut glass Nova gems, which were um, multicolored glass, you know, fake jewels, uh, which would sparkle in the sunlight. And then at night they were illuminated by searchlights. Um, uh, The CP Huntington, the first steam locomotive purchased by Southern Pacific Railroad was on display. Uh, the Liberty Bell was brought across the country um, to be displayed as well. Um, and a telephone line to New York City was established for this uh, for this fair. 
Yeah. In 1929, we have the Barcelona International Exposition. Um, didn't find a whole lot about this one, but there were 29 countries and 5.8 million visitors. Um, and they built the Magic Fountain in uh, the Montjuic part of Barcelona for this, um, which I've, I came across the Magic Fountain and I was like, this seems weird. I wonder why they put this here for a World's Fair. 1933-1934, we have the Century of Progress International Exhibition in Chicago. This one has 19 countries and 38 million visitors, um, and a theme of technological innovation. Kind of playing off the White City, this time it is the Rainbow City. Um, they intentionally have very colorful buildings. Um, the Skyride Transporter Bridge was a major spectacle of this one. Um, and the Homes of Tomorrow exhibit was especially notable and popular with dozens of displays from dis different companies imagining what the homes of the future might be like. As if human zoos are not gross enough, this one had the Midget City with 60 residents who were little people. Yeah. In 1935, there's another one in Brussels. I didn't find a lot about it. 24 countries participated and 20 million visitors attended. You know, like... It, it's kind of mind-boggling that there can be a thing that 20 million people go to and I can't find information about what happened right. there. Um, but it was it was the age of the world's fairs. Um, I guess. Yeah. In 1937, we have... Um, this one had a little bit different name. Exposition Internationale des Arts et Techniques dans la Vie Moderne. Um, international Exposition of... Arts and technique, science, I don't know. Technology. Uh, techno technology, there we go. Uh, in modern life. Um, this one's in Paris, 45 countries, 31 million visitors. Um, there was a planned great building. It was going to be called uh, Phare du Monde, um, like a lighthouse, a 2,300-foot tall tower. Um, they planned to build it and then really never got started because it became clear that the expense would be phenomenal. Nazi Germany had a pavilion at this one, crowned with an eagle and a swastika, so that's great. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and the Soviet Union had a pavilion directly across from that pavilion, um, <laughs> <laughs> featuring uh, crowned with a, a male worker and a female peasant raising a hammer and sickle. Uh, that was the most notable thing I found about this one. Uh, in 1939, there was the Golden Gate International Exposition in San Francisco, uh, which commemorated the completion of the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, it was located on an island called Treasure Island. Um, it was closed prematurely, and it's pretty hard to track down much about it. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though. And then in 1939-1940, we get a New York World's Fair with 33 countries in attendance and 44 million visitors. Um, this one was held in Flushing Meadows in Queens, um, and the site would be reused in 1964-65. But the 64-65 one is not recognized by the BIE, so we're not going to hear about this location again for now. Television was introduced um, at this World's Fair with NBC inaugurating telecasts, uh, starting with President Roosevelt's speech at the opening ceremonies. Hmm. Uh, one popular exhibit was a Westinghouse time capsule, which is not to be opened until uh, 5,000 years in the future, the year 6939. Um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now. Uh, nylon fabric and the Viewmaster were introduced at this one. And I believe that you have addressed in the past that there was a pavilion designed by Salvador Dali. 
Mm-hmm. I yep. Have. Yeah. With like fish head people. Yes. Which sounded so weird to me at the time, but now that we're contextualizing World's Fairs a little more, I'm like, okay, fish head people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Put them in and next to the human zoo. Yeah, it's um, absurd that we can love humans with fish tails. Why couldn't we love humans with fish heads? Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. In 1949, 1950, uh, there is um, an exposition in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Uh, commemorating the 200th anniversary of the city. Um, 15 countries attend. We don't have attendance info about this one. There was a musical performance calendar, including Dizzy Gillespie, Marian Anderson, Miles Davis, Celia Cruz, um, some other names that I recognize. Those were the biggest, I thought. After the exposition, many of the pavilions became uh, Haitian government buildings, um, but were subsequently, much later, um, destroyed in the 2010 earthquake. Uh, but that was one of the legacies of this for Haiti. Um, it seems like the attendance was fairly low. In 1958, uh, we have the um, Brussels World's Fair, also known as Expo 58. We're in Belgium. Again, 41 countries attend this and 42 million visitors. The Atomium is built for this. Another thing that I've come across and been like, huh, why? Um, and it still stands. Um, it is a giant model of an iron crystal unit cell. Uh, so it is, okay. th- it is 330 feet, 335 feet tall. It's like spheres connected by tubes looking all kind of molecule-y. And you can go up inside there and, you know, kind of look out from inside the spheres. And then the top atom contains a restaurant. This this one had a Belgian Congo exhibit, of course, where Congolese people were brought in and then forced to dress in traditional clothes, even though they didn't themselves live in that way. Uh, but in mid-July, the Congolese people um, protested their treatment. They were actually uh, armed guards prevented the attendees from interacting with the Congolese people or vice versa. Um, so like extra super gross. So in mid-July, they protested their treatment and demanded to be sent home. That ended the exhibit. And I don't think I've found an, I think, I think that may be like the last human zoo in 1958. Yeah. There was also an incident at this world's fair um, where the original manuscript of Mozart's Requiem was displayed. And then someone managed to tear off a corner of a page. <laughs> and take it with them. Uh, and the corner of the page has not been recovered. You can go find pictures of that on Wikipedia. Uh, this fair also uh, was the occasion of an international poll of film critics um, to kind of determine what was, you know, what the consensus was about uh, the best movie in the world. Um, Battleship Potemkin won the most acclaimed film. Hmm. The Gold Rush came in second, and the Italian film Bicycle Thieves was third. Oh, Bicycle Thieves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard of that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in 1962, we have the Century 21 Exposition in Seattle. The Space Needle was built for this, um, as well as a monorail and uh, several sports venues, uh, most notably the Washington Coliseum, which is now the Climate Pledge Arena. And performing arts buildings were built for the occasion as well. Uh, this one had 24 countries in attendance and 9.6 million visitors. There was a space theme very sort of informed by the space race that was happening at the time. 
Um, the World of Century 21 exhibit was, um, was especially notable with visions of the future futuristic offices and schools and cities. Um, there was a very ambitious performing arts schedule with nightly performances of significant groups and performers from around the world. Um, and the World of Art exhibit featured the work of many um, American painters, modern American painters. Expo 67 in Montreal, uh, 1967. This is another of the big ones. Um, 62 countries, 55 million visitors. Um, this is considered to be the most successful World's Fair of the 20th century, although you'll ask yourself why in a minute. Um, the, uh, as, we, as we hear some of the other numbers, um, the motto was man and his world. And uh, this one was uh, celebrating the centennial of the Canadian Confederation. Uh, the mayor of Montreal, Jean Drapeau, had to overcome considerable resistance to bring the fair to fruition. Um, new islands were created in the St. Lawrence River to serve as the fairgrounds for this. Habitat 67, a housing complex, was built for the fair. Um, the U.S. Pavilion was a geodesic dome designed by Buckminster Fuller. Um, Funky. Yep. Uh, it remains standing and is now the Montreal Biosphere, um, which is an environmental museum. Another place that I've been to and been like... This is weird. I wonder why this is here. Um, <laughs> uh, this fair did, greatly outdid its, um, its projected attendance. I think that's one of the reasons that it's considered especially successful. Expo 70 in Osaka, Japan in 1970 had 78 countries in attendance um, and 64 million visitors. Uh, the theme was progress and harmony for mankind. Uh, this one held the record for the most visitors to attend a World's Fair uh, with 64 million until it was surpassed in Shanghai in 2010. Um, and it was the first World's Fair held in Japan. The first IMAX film was premiered here. Um, Moonrock was on display. Um, and there were demonstrations of mobile phones, local area networks, and a maglev train, uh, magnetic levitation train technology. The next World's Fair after that, we go from 1970 straight to 1992. Expo 92 happens in Seville, Spain, uh, celebrating the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage. Um, this one has 42 million visitors and 112 countries participating. It was originally intended to be a joint World's Fair uh, with Seville and Chicago, um, recognizing also the centennial of Chicago's Columbian Exposition, um, but Chicago pulled out due to funding issues. There were huge grounds for this one, multiple forms of transit built for the occasion. The country pavilions were architecturally inventive with countries kind of vying to be, you know, like the the most interesting, most exciting uh, pavilion. Um, the Morocco pavilion was especially noted, a recreation of a Moroccan palace mansion. Um, and the Japan pavilion was the world's largest wooden structure. Mm. Um, yeah. All right, and we're heading into the 21st century um, with Expo 2000 in Hanover, Germany. This one had 18 million visitors and 180 participating countries, but it was considered a flop uh, because the attendance was less than half of what they had projected, and they ran a financial deficit of $600 million. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Uh, Expo 2005 comes next in Aichi, Japan. Um, this one had a theme of nature's wisdom. 121 countries participated and 22 million visitors attended. I saw some stuff about what they had there, but the, the thing that really stuck with me was that there was a reproduction of Satsuki and May's house from the movie My Neighbor Totoro. Um, oh. Yeah. 
Expo 2010 was in Shanghai. This one set the standing attendance record with 73 million visitors. Um, 192 countries participated and 50 organizations. Um, and the theme was better city, better life, with a focus on environmental sustainability, efficiency and diversity and urban development. There were protests about this one. Some of the later fairs had had protests. Um, this one had had protests having to do with the displacement of residents to build fairgrounds um, and some other some other political controversies as well. And the most recent World's Fair is uh, Expo 2015 in Milan, Italy, uh, with 22 million visitors, 145 participating countries, and the theme "Feeding the Planet: Energy for Life." So there was a food focus in this one. Which led to uh, some relaxations of um, EU rules um, in order to let the countries of the world exhibit and demonstrate things from their cultures. Um, the Zimbabwe Pavilion had um, crocodile burgers, zebra burgers, and python burgers. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know, right? The Japanese Pavilion uh, was allowed to serve um, fugu sashimi, pufferfish sashimi. And the Future Food District sold packs of canned insects, uh, suggesting that, you know, we should be seeking more sustainable protein sources in the future. So that's the most recent World's Fair. Um, We were supposed to be having a World's Fair this year. It was supposed to be open right now in Dubai. Mm. Yeah, it's postponed until 2021. I didn't know a single thing about that. I honestly, until I started researching this deep dive, I thought that World's Fairs were more of a historic thing. But yeah. I was wrong. Uh, but yeah, 2021, if the, if the pandemic uh, conditions have subsided, it will be in Dubai. Um, and 2025 is slated for Osaka, Japan again. Hmm. Yeah. And a huge takeaway for me from this, like I just kept coming across like different landmarks that I had encountered in my travel and looked at and been like, well, that's kind of you know, that's cool, but but also kind of weird. And I wonder what the origin story is. World's fairs. They're just all from world's fairs. Huh. Yeah. So uh, that is, I'm not sure how deep it was, but that that's the dive. Uh, now you have heard the BIE authorized world's fairs. Yeah. So are you ready for a quiz? Yeah, I think. Okay. So I was trying to figure out what to do about this quiz. And then I thought, you know what? There is one really significant World's Fair that is not on this list. It is the 1964-1965 New York City World's Fair. And so I have a quiz about that one. Hmm. I'm working it in, in that way. Question one. The 1964-1965 World's Fair in New York is the only significant World's Fair since the founding of the BIE to be held without its endorsement. In fact, not only did the BIE refuse to endorse the fair, but they also formally requested that all of their member nations not participate after a bitter public dispute with what New York power broker. So I'm looking for sort of the New York figure... 1964, 1965, who is associated with the World's Fair and numerous other things. You know, he was, he's, he's a power broker. He's associated with a lot. 1964. I, f- I feel like this should be obvious to me, but I'm not getting a name. Maybe not. Duh, Rockefeller. I don't know. Mm, no, uh, it's, it's Robert Moses. Mm. 
I have heard that name. Yeah. Um, so, and we've uh, we've kind of touched on him briefly. Um, there is a Pulitzer Pl- Prize winning biography of him called The Power Broker. He never held elected office in New York, but he uh, served in numerous official capacities, including what was he called? The Parks Commissioner, I think was the was the most important one. He was he was very influential in many things that shaped um, uh, sort of New York City and its its transit, its parks, and all kinds of things about it, and was kind of the brains behind the the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair. He liked getting his way. Um, he was going to have a, a two-year-long World's Fair, and that was, that was just the end of it. And uh, it ended up getting very contentious. Hmm. um with the with the bureau so they uh well i guess the story's in the question <laughs> um uh so yeah it, they they ended up getting contentious with with the bureau but the world's fair was pretty successful anyway um all right so question 2 um it's more associated with anaheim and orlando but it first appeared in new york at the pepsi cola pavilion of the world's fair what audio animatronic attraction with an infectious tune, was first presented at the World's Fair as a salute to UNICEF and the world's children. Oh, it's got to be "It's a Small World." That is correct. Yeah, they, it, and and it was it was very popular. It also, I think, introduced the idea of like like a like a boat ride where you could load up a whole bunch of people, and that that keeps the line moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Uh, it was well attended, but it never had super long lines like other things that you had to that you had to walk through. Um, and I think uh, that uh, that innovation was was influential as well. All right, so you're at ten points. Uh, question three: This might have been wiped from your memory, but the World's Fair is actually mentioned in what 1990s blockbuster where one character explains to another that the observatory towers of the World's Fair were in fact alien spacecraft and the fair just a cover-up story to explain their presence. Why else do you think they had it in Queens? It's Men in Black. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> you knew the line. That was so great. All right. <laughs> um Okay, you're at 20 points. Man, you, you, took, you took my follow-up line. That's great. I'm <laughs> so proud. <laughs> All right, question four. One of the most popular exhibits at the fair, this sculpture was featured at the Vatican Pavilion, uh, carefully guarded with viewers viewing it from a moving walkway. It's a sculpture by Michelangelo, although the name we know it by refers to any image of Mary holding the body of the crucified Christ. What is the name of this sculpture? Uh, that is the Pietà. That is correct. I, I have seen it. Nice. Oh, yeah, because you've been to the Vatican. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. You're just cruising on through at 30 points. Question five. It wasn't technically part of the World's Fair, but its grand opening was just five days before the opening day of the World's Fair. With the Pittsburgh Pirates defeating its home team four to three. What stadium, which closed in two thousand eight, attracted crowds of fairgoers? Okay, I believe that is Shea Stadium. Yes, that is Shea Stadium of the hated uh, New York Mets. Mm-hmm. Of the New York Mets, uh, which has been replaced 
by City Field. Um, yeah. I wrote a sports question and I think it was okay. It did. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so you're at 40 points. And the final category, we'll call it business and industry. I don't like that. But I got to get some big point games up in here. So I'm going to go all in. Okay. So here's your clue. We are all just about sick to death of video calls at this point. But they were a pretty fabulous novelty in 1964 when the picture phone debuted at the New York World's Fair at the pavilion of what telecom near Monopoly? Oh, Oh, what was that? <laughs> oh, no. I have two thoughts in my head. And I'm going to go with the one that's jumping out more. And say Pacific Bell. I'm trying to decide whether to take that. So the answer just is Bell. I think Pacific Bell is like one of... Was one when it was yeah. broken up. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think I can take it, right? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not a, like, telecom business history expert. Um, as I was reading, it seemed like... Yeah. No, uh, it was broken up into Southwest, Southern, Pacific, New England. And it seemed to me that, like, Bell was the system, but, like, AT&T was the company, so I would have taken, I would have taken Bell or AT&T because, like, I can, uh, I'm not Those were the two. Yeah. (laughs) All right. You were so close. Uh, But, like, like Phil M, I guess Phil, I guess close is sometimes not close enough. Um, Yeah. So. Barry Gordy. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm still mad about Barry Gordy. I think we're all mad about Barry Gordy. Yeah. But hopefully you learned some things about the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair. And, oh, I uh, did. And the other World's Fairs, too. Yes. I can tell you I did. Yeah, um, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully our listeners did as well. Speaking of our listeners, hey, listeners, thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, we appreciate you. And I appreciate you, Kyle. Thanks for podcasting with me. Oh, of course. It's my pleasure. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, It would really help us if you would leave a review or a rating as well. Um, It doesn't have to be a long review. It doesn't even have to be a review at all. Just, Just tap the stars, you know, preferably five. But, you know, be honest. It's okay. We can take it. Preferably stars. Yeah. (laughs) It helps us out with the algorithm so that other people can find us. If you want to check out our Patreon, um, we're on Patreon at Potent Potables. Um, but as we said before, uh, there are more important things in the world. So, you know, be judicious if you need to make decisions about where your focus goes. Put it somewhere that matters. And if you have the spare bandwidth to uh, support your podcasters, you know, that's welcome too. And even if that's not uh, something you can do right now, which I can totally get, Uh, You can at least talk to your friends. We have phones and stuff. You can tell them to listen. And then you can talk about the episode with them. They and you can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. 
We will be back with you next week with another week of New Jeopardy episodes. I am so glad there are New Jeopardy episodes. Um, There are so many bad things about this year, but there are New Jeopardy episodes. So we're going to make it through. Until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm -hmm.